electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Melissa. I'm John Fort, and here is what's ahead. Margin call meltdown. How one money manager tanked some big names and exposed what could be an over-leveraged banking system. Plus, the federal housing eviction program is starting to cause cracks in one key area of the market, and it could have big ripple effects. We will discuss. And the five-star fund manager who's outperformed the markets by betting on what he calls disruptive companies. But we begin, as always, with today's markets. Dom Chu has that. Trying to find some stability, John. That's what the markets are trying to do right now. Because of that big hedge fund implosion, you'd think the markets would be trying to trend a little bit lower. They have been, but modestly so. The Dow Industrials, by the way, up about 60 points. That's the highs of the day. We were down about 167, roughly, at the low. So that gives you an idea of the overall trading range for the day. Just about flat for the S&P 500. Remember, these two hit records on Friday. The Nasdaq Composite underperforming down about one-third of 1%. Chinese Internet stocks at the epicenter, arguably, of that massive liquidation that we saw tied to Arcade. Goes capital. The Crane Share CSI Internet ETF, ticker KWEV, is off about 1% right now. But this particular ETF houses many of those names that we've talked about possibly Baidu, possibly VIP shops, VIP shops, possibly Tencent Music. All of those names in focus here. This ETF is now down pretty markedly just since the highs that we saw earlier in the year. And then some of the other names. That are tied to this forced liquidation, U.S. media stocks that have been the darling for months now, Viacom, CBS and Discovery Communications. Both you can see are huge gains over the last year. But it's this part that's catching everybody off guard here. That's massive move lower. We are seeing some folks come out and say maybe things have gone too far, too fast to the downside. So we'll see whether or not there are bargain pickers up there. But, John, still not a lot of transparency with regard to how much further this could go, given the ramifications and ripple effects out of Arcagos and its prime brokers. Back over to you. Yeah, seems like a bit of a, of a theme, Dom, for a number of things in the market so far this year. Thanks. So as investors deal with the fallout from billions of dollars in forced selling, how did we get to this point, and does the volatility signal a systemic risk to the markets? For more, I'm joined by Kate Kelly, reporter at The New York Times, and Herb Greenberg, partner at Pacific Square Research and a CNBC contributor. Hey, we're all at CNBC again. It feels like I'm in a like, seven-year time warp, which is in a good way. Uh, Herb, it's a hedge fund tra- trade that we didn't see coming. It has ripple effects leading to volatility. Not the first time we're hearing that in 2021. So which is more significant, you think, Archegos or, or the GameStop short squeeze we saw not too long ago? I don't think you can say which it will be because or which which is more significant, because I think each one is just a little a little more of a chip at market structure. It's so each one is telling you something, something is off. And I think that, um, you know, so this is the most, this is the latest one. And, you know, even the smartest people I talk to on this, and we, you know, we're talking to my friends who know the markets, who know it much better than I do because they participate. They're sitting here scratching their heads, but they're all saying, yeah, we see it coming because remember, whatever is going to happen, when the market goes, if the market goes, it's always going to be something out of left field. I've been saying that for, for the longest period of time. And you have people gaming the system, gaming each other, 
And each one is thinking they won't be left holding the bag. So there's always somebody who's coming up with something new and something, some other way to sort of, you know, push their own, their own, uh, their own, you know, returns in this market. I mean, look, I had one guy I was talking to this morning and he's trying to figure this out. And he says, tell me, I thought they were long. So how's there a margin call? And he was trying to just figure it out intellectually. So I think there's so much people don't know about this. We don't know if it's the first, the second, the third, the last for some period of time. But we know it tells us something about the structure of this market. I'm still trying to figure out what it does tell us, Kate, especially because it seems like another case where there are rules that were supposed to have prevented this. There are supposed to be disclosures when uh, there's this big of a potential impact. But none of that seemed to, to happen here, right? Right. Well, I think uh, one interesting thing is these banks have to do uh, regular monitoring of their prime clients, right? If they're going to be lending them money, there's a whole know your customer process that involves a ton of paperwork and a ton of exchanges every year. And then there's ongoing uh, monitoring of the funds, their assets, their cash positions. Um, I think we know as of today that Nomura and Credit Suisse uh, are potentially facing significant losses. Credit Suisse hasn't quantified them. Nomura has said it could be up to $2 billion. Goldman Sachs has said that the losses they anticipate or have seen so far are immaterial. Not much word out of Morgan Stanley. But I think you can see already there's a little bit of a divergence here between different banks and how they did their risk management. So that's one thing to note. Um, And I think there probably was quite a lot of disclosure from Arkego to these funds, but they are these banks rather, but they have only so much control over whether Arkego, for example, is going to sell off a losing Viacom stock, which turns on a dime. And I would agree with Herb that, you know, it's kind of early days on the Archego situation. It's, it's kind of hard to know whether that's going to be more or less significant than GameStop. As we sit here right now, it seems less significant, but there could be more things to come out of this. And what they both are about in a very broad sense is market volatility, stock market volatility right now, unexpected drops. The fact that a Viacom CBS tanked in, in a few mere days um, w- without clear evidence as to why that happened fundamentally um, is is the kind of market we're seeing in 2021. <laughs> and Herb, I, I think a lot of retail investors, especially the newer ones, might not have a sense when they buy into a stock of whether it's worth that to begin with. It seems like the baseline assumption seems to be, well, the stock is fairly valued here, and if I think it's a good company, it should go higher. I mean, is this, in a way, a warning, right, to every retail investor that you've got to understand fundamentals and you've got to understand the story here because you never know who else is holding this or dumping it in the short term? Well, well, it's another warning. It's just <laughs> another warning. The question is, do they want to listen? I mean, Jason Zweig had this great story in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend in his intelligent investor column about, you know, this sort of the this, this is a bull market built on dumb money to some extent where people are just saying, hey, I don't really care. I'm just going to buy it. And that seems to be, you know, this phase we've been in certainly much of last year, because remember, it was so easy to make money. And, and so people just felt, hey, I just want to be part of this. But now, now they're seeing there is some risk. And so even doing what I do, which is short biased research, you're starting to see some discrimination. You're starting to be able to breathe again and say, okay, we can start doing real work again because people are paying attention. But those other people who think it was so easy, they are going to learn. It's not they may learn. They are going to learn. And this is just another indicator that it is 
a lot tougher than it appears. <laughs> well, well, Kate, if we look at the rings in the market tree, right, to mark time, is there something that this sort of a groove tells us about where we might be in the market? I mean, Herb is talking about uh, this being yet another signal that maybe this time isn't that different, that things uh, will get back into a, a normal kind of cadence, perhaps, if I'm interpreting Herb correctly. Uh, have there been other times when things like this have happened that have signaled something about where we are? Right. So does this tell us where we are in a certain cycle? Um, and what are the historical precedents, if any? Like some people are comparing the Archegos situation to LTCM. I don't know if it's quite that dramatic. Um, Jillian, I'm inclined to say no, because I feel as though what's happening right now with retail investors, uh, people in this very unique situation where for all this year, we've had a pandemic, they've been quarantined, a lot of people have time on their hands. Of course, there's been a ton of economic distress, but there are some who have some additional disposable income and nothing really to do with it in terms of going out and attending events and traveling. So they're spending it on stocks. You also have this cultural movement going on, which we did see with the GameStop event, whereas there's this kind of stick it to the man mentality. Um, One person I interviewed when I was covering GameStop was my friend's 12-year-old son who got really interested in Wall Street bets and all the possibilities of the Robinhood app where you can apparently buy like a fraction of a share and you can use leverage. And he was playing not with a ton of house money, but got really into it, was really following the story and hadn't done his research uh, on GameStop, but just wanted to be part of the kind of action. So I think we're seeing this really somewhat unprecedented period in terms of these individual investors in the market. Maybe you could compare it to the tech bubble. I remember my colleague Susan Pulliam at the Wall Street Journal used to check in with this barber shop um, (laughs) that was on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, where they were investing in tech stocks and discussing their investments. She would go up there like once a quarter to see how it was going. So it's interesting and, and sort of unpredictable for that reason. But I'm not sure it's as much of a cyclical indicator as it is about some of these unusual forces coming together at the same time. Herb, I don't know if you have. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say there's one other thing going on here because we start talking about market structure. And in addition to all of the other things, you know, we're talking about, you know, we talk about the retail investors, we talk about the leverage, we talk about the regulators, where are they and looking at some of this, but we also have the passive investing. And the passive investing is part of this whole market structure dynamic that is going on that you can't look at. And I'm talking about the ETFs owning so much and so controlling is so there's no discrimination in what they own. But again, this kind of thing starts to shake that and starts to, again, test the, the mechanics of that part of the market, which has just had a free ride during the entire bull run. That's yeah. right, because you might see a GameStop run up as, a, as an isolated one-off situation, which, of course, it wasn't. But if you're holding a, a passive indexed ETF and suddenly GameStop is a huge proportion of your exposure, when it falls, uh, your, your retirees and your other uh, less active investors could get hurt. Can't help but wonder what's going to happen when people who have been focused on the little screen with not much else to do, hey, the economy's opened back up, are they going to sell? To go buy those concert tickets, um, perhaps we'll see Herb Greenberg, Kate Kelly. Thank you. Pleasure. Let's turn now to the broader markets. Stocks starting the day lower, but clawing their way back right now. The Dow and S&P are both in the green. The Nasdaq just shy of that. Investors digesting the margin call meltdown and rates that continue to rise. Let's talk about where we go from here. Joining me now, Barry James, president of James Investment Research, and Alan Boomer, chief investment officer at Momentum Advisors. Guys, good afternoon. 
Alan, um, does this Archego situation shift at all the way you look at investing for the year? Thanks for having me. No, not for the year. I think it just highlights an area that might need some additional regulation. You know, when you think about Bill Wang, I mean, for one, he, he was able to skate some, regula- some regulations by, number one, registering as a family office. Number two, he's involved in swaps, which are not required in 13F filings. And so the market kind of did not know what this guy was up to, even though we do know that he was confirmed to have done insider trading you know, almost 10 years ago, right? And so this is, I think, a one-off, but I think it will impact regulations moving forward, or it should. And I think, you know, some of the investment banks, you know, were, were a little lax with regards to their risk management and their own hedging. And so it, it's a blip. I don't think this is a major, major thing, but certainly it's causing some downside and maybe some buying opportunities in the market right now. Well, let's talk about buying opportunities. Barry uh, was just talking to Herb Greenberg, who was saying that maybe some fundamentals, some sense of that coming back into the market. Do do you think that's happening? And if so, what does it mean for how you need to analyze stocks? Yeah, if you're going to be in Shark Week like we are in this situation, you want a nice big boat. And the (laughs) boat that I would would be uh, going around in is one that is focused on value and the cyclical nature of the uh, economy right now and even smaller stocks, the things that have been ignored for so long. Since October, we've really seen value really outperform, whereas it was, you know, on a a difference basis, down 30% compared to growth last year. So those would be the things that I would be looking at. So small, I like Innova. Uh, Medium, I like uh, Pioneer Natural Resources. And large, I like Caterpillar. All in that cyclical realm, uh, a little bit on the finance side, the oil side, and, of course, mining uh, so those are those are all really strong. We have those in our Golden Rainbow Fund. So uh, we we got a lot of belief in them. Yeah, Alan, you, you would point out that COVID news and headlines used to weigh on the market. Now it's a bit of the opposite, at least for some stocks. But I look at names like uh, DoorDash, for example. They're down what more than forty five percent from the highs. So if we're having a rationalization of what's happening among different cohorts of stocks, do investors need to think about upside and downside for some of these? Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. You know, we're in sort of a re-rating period, you know, and the economy will reopen. I'm starting to see evidence of that. I went out with my family for the first time in 12 months just last night, and I got to a restaurant and the restaurant was packed. I mean, not 100% capacity, probably 50% capacity. There were people waiting in the lobby. And the the parking lot was full of people who, you know, normally they would have ordered DoorDash, but instead they ordered the food and picked it up themselves. You know, you're starting to see people getting out of the house. You're seeing human beings roaming the earth again. And it's it's a good thing, you know, but I I do think that, um, you know, value is really important. You know, I know the you look at this year, you know, value stocks are up 12%. Growth stocks are kind of flat. And that's part of that re-rating, that reopening story. Yeah, it kind of feels like we're sending out a dove and it's coming back with appetizers, which would be a, a good thing. Um, <laughs> Barry, uh, you, you think volatility is going to continue. How does the investor position her or himself uh, to, to benefit from that? 
Well, it's an opportunity. <laughs> That's the way you have to look at it uh, when you see the, the market pull back then to, to do some advance. We think the market's going to continue to go up. I know Kelly was surprised last time I said that, but it, it's been true so far. You know, cheap money and uh, lots of money flowing in, stimulus and, and the like. Uh, but the volatility is going to stay around. You look at, at turnover, people turning stocks over. Their holding period is about the lowest ever. Uh, you have, you know, nobody shorting stocks hardly anymore. Uh, the VIX is very low. So that is going to ensure that we're going to see this this uh, air pockets, if you will. So that's the time to move in. And especially in those small stocks, which have had an incredible run, uh, let them settle down a little bit and then you can move in. Okay. Okay. Specific advice, sound advice. Barry James, thank you. Alan Boomer, say hi to my high school friend Janelle for me. I will. <laughs> and coming up, stuck. That seems to be a popular word in shipping these days. Products stuck at California ports. Ships stuck at the Suez Canal. We will speak with a retailer who took a different route to avoid all that manufacturing in the U.S. And let's take a look at the financials right now. Yields may be rising, but the sector is not. Morgan Stanley, City, and Wells Fargo among the worst performers. Exchange will be back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. At a time when many companies are looking to cut costs or adjust supply chains, one retailer is living up to its name, American Giant. Its supply chain is right here in the U.S., and that's helped it get through the worst of last year's economic crisis. At the start of the pandemic, it pivoted from making hoodies and leggings and to masks uh, for frontline health care workers, and it has scrambled as demand has snapped back. Let's welcome Bayard Winthrop, uh, founder and CEO of American Giant. Bayard, great to have you. You and I were just talking last week, and I was like, really got to get this conversation on CNBC. Um, I remember seeing you make this pivot, but you say demand has come back so strong that, uh, you know, inventory just isn't there at the level that, that one might expect. It's something that we're hearing across the economy, but for a, a primarily digital online player like you, you've been able to be nimble. Yeah, we have, although, you know, some of that was self-inflicted, John. It's hard to forget to, to remember this far back now. But, you know, we moved aggressively early in the pandemic to cut our supply chain back to sort of um, uh, get ready for what we thought was going to be a bad year. And then as, as volume picked up, uh, we've been in kind of a scrambling and chasing posture ever since. It's been easier doing that domestically, uh, but it's been a challenge. So you make 
comfortable clothes, which kind of works well for people who are, are stuck at home or at least close to home. And you had a model where you are primarily online with a few retail locations. How is that going to shift coming out of the pandemic? What are you going to do with bricks and mortar? Yeah, so I can tell you what our perspective about it is. We, we are a, a believer that we are going to snap back quickly. Uh, we think that the second half of the year is going to be very strong. Uh, we are getting aggressive in retail. We're trying to open up uh, retail locations when we find leases and locations that we like. Uh, but the underlying bet there is that uh, consumer demand is going to continue to remain strong and is going to actually accelerate through the second half of the year. So we're getting on our toes with retail. What has happened to that domestic supply chain, though, in this past year. I mean, you're unique. You, you make clothes under the American Giant uh, label. They're made here from um, material sourced, you know, cotton sourced in the U.S. Um, what has happened to some of the mills from some of the uh, different uh, suppliers who you've worked with over this period of time? Yeah, as, as you say, John, it, it, we do have a, we have a very diversified supply chain, all of which is domestic, from the cotton in the ground all the way through to the finished product. Uh, but it's been a mixed bag. You find that um, some of the uh, the smaller uh, family uh, operations have had a hard time uh, with weaker balance sheets. They've had a hard time navigating um, the uncertain environment that we've been in. Um, but on the larger end of the spectrum, some of the the larger organizations that have invested in technology and stayed in front of the technological and automation curve curve have done quite well. Um, so we've had a couple of our suppliers fall out that has caused us to scramble in our, our, uh, our Wovens Bottoms business, for example. We had a key factory that went out of business. Um, so it's been a mixed bag, but the, but the people that have stayed in front of it and stayed aggressive about investing in their capacity have weathered quite well and I think are poised to accelerate through the second half of the year. So let's take a step back and talk a little policy. You, you have so much, you know, all of your supply chain domestic, so you've got a great view on this. What's needed to really support and even grow the efforts of those various sorts of businesses that are in your supply chain looking to have jobs here, looking to grow opportunity here in the U.S.? It's a great question, John. I think it's a it's a it's it's a varied answer, but at the core of it is, I think we need more predictability on the supply chain side of things, so that the supply chain uh, uh, components can invest, can invest in technology, and can invest in scale. And so, I think that the policymakers have a role to play there uh, as the Biden administration begins to think a little bit more uh, thoroughly about. Um, uh, uh, beefing up supplies from the United States. Retailers, you see Walmart's announcement that came out a couple of weeks ago about their big buy in uh, Made in America initiative. I think as retailers begin to take a leadership position there and, and require their suppliers make things in the United States, that helps. I think consumers have a role to play as they begin to get a little bit more cautious and aware about where their things are being made that they're buying. And finally, I think brands need to lead uh, so that uh, when you have people getting caught up in either What's happening in the Suez Canal right now or the Xinjiang situation in China, I think brands need to recognize that the, the global supply chain is more fragile, a little bit more fraught than they realized and begin to, to take the lead domestically as well. So if those things come together, I think that will provide um, uh, a setting where uh, the manufacturing sector can continue to, to thrive and grow in the coming years. Quickly, if you can, what's the best technology investment you made that helped through the past year? Uh, it's a great question. It's probably an investment in, in manufacturing engineering to get our people more efficient. Uh, but we've also made some uh, investments in automation, like automa uh, automated uh, marker makers and, and cutting machines uh, that have reduced man hours and, and uh, allowed us to be a little bit more precise in our fabric yields and things like that. So uh, on the people side and on the, and the technology side, both have helped a lot and have kept us um, um, doing quite well. All right. A great look inside uh, Made in America for this period of time. Bayard Winthrop of American Giant. Thank you. Thanks, John.
And coming up, the federal housing moratorium was expanded today. And while it's good news for some, it's having a big ripple effect across the entire market. We will tell you the good and the bad. Plus, Kathy Wood heads to space with a new ETF. We got the details. Be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are mixed right now. The Dow and S&P, Dow's in the green at least. The S&P just about at break even. The Nasdaq seeing the biggest declines, but well off session lows as well. The 10-year margin call jitters and a dire warning from the CDC director on rising COVID cases. All of that playing a factor today. We'll have more on the CDC ahead. But now let's check the sectors. Utilities, consumer staples, and communication uh, services, your leaders, Energy and financials are your biggest laggards right now. And here are some of the movers this hour with the reopening trade under pressure. Take a look at the restaurant stocks, uh, Dine Brands, Cheesecake Factory, Bloomin' Brands, all seeing some big declines. Live entertainment stocks also getting hit, including Eventbrite, SeaWorld, and Six Flags. And online betting stocks sharply lower right now with Penn National down more than 7%. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, John. Hello, everyone. Well, during today's White House COVID briefing, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky made emotional plea to the country. She's urging everyone to continue to wear a mask and social distance. We have so much to look forward to. She has a sense of impending doom because the uptick in cases that we're seeing now is a warning sign that another surge is coming. We have so much to look forward to. So much promise and potential of where we are and so much reason for hope. But right now I'm scared. Um, I know what it's like as a physician to stand in that patient room, gowned, gloved, masked, shielded, and to be the last person to touch someone else's loved one because their loved one couldn't be there. So I'm speaking today not necessarily as your CDC director and not only as your CDC director, but as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter to ask you to just please hold on a little while longer. I so badly want to be done. I know you all so badly want to be done. We are just almost there, but not quite yet. And tonight on the news with Shepard Smith at 7 p.m. Eastern, the latest on the states that are expanding eligibility for the COVID vaccine. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Despite suffering some big losses this year, Kathy Wood is launching another ETF. This one focused on space exploration. The ETF is going to trade under the ticker ARKX and launch tomorrow. It'll invest in 39 companies, including Trimble, its top holding, Kratos, uh, L3, Harris, JD.com, and Virgin Galactic. For more, you can head to CNBC.com slash pro. And tomorrow on Power Lunch, you'll hear from ARK's space analyst, who is instrumental in developing the ETF. Now still ahead, Southwest proving to be one of Boeing's most loyal customers. We'll explain, but first, 
The CDC extending the eviction moratorium for renters, but that could have negative long-term effects on affordable housing. That's also next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. The CDC just extended its rental eviction ban that was set to expire in two days and now goes through the end of June. And while it protects tenants, it's leaving landlords in the lurch and uh, could leave them without relief, at least some of them. Diana Olick joins me now with the very latest. Diana. Well, John, small landlords own just over half of the nation's rental homes. Now, two different stimulus bills have earmarked over $50 billion in rental relief, but much of it is not getting there because the process must start with tenants. The critical thing here is for these jurisdictions to really streamline what they're doing and make access to capital much easier for the residents and for the property owners. 15% of renter households, or 6.7 million, said they were behind on their rent, according to a recent census survey. More than a quarter say they have either slight or no confidence they can pay next month. As for the relief, 40% of rental owners who are owed back rent say they have not received the necessary paperwork from tenants to file for it. That, according to the National Rental Housing Council. Now, 11% said they have already been forced to sell at least one of their properties. Marilyn Blackburn has been a landlord in Washington state for 20 years, but she said she's lost more than $12,000 in the last six months. It's just frustrating, and I think they're going to make it worse before it gets better by changing these rules and forcing us to keep tenants longer. So time to get out. Blackburn says she's going to sell all of her nine properties. But the trouble with landlords selling is that in today's incredibly tight housing market, buyers will likely be the occupants, reducing the stock of desperately needed affordable rental housing. John? Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Reducing the stock of rental housing. More broadly, what are experts telling you about what this might do to landlord behavior overall? Does it change their math on what it takes to get uh, these rental properties uh, profitable? Is, is it any easier to refinance as a landlord at a lower rate here? Uh, no, it's not easier for them. But actually what they're telling uh, them is that more landlords are going to start having much stricter guidelines for how they decide which tenants they could take. So it may become harder to become a tenant in a rental property because the landlords are going to be so careful about who they want to put into the home, wanting to make sure that they'll actually get that rent. So it's not only going to become less affordable to be a renter, it'll also be harder to qualify to be a renter, John. Wow. Harder to buy and harder to rent. Uh, Diana, that is rough news. Thank you. So with approximately $25 billion in renter assistance still to be distributed, is the CDC's extension of the rental eviction moratorium a good move? Our next guest says yes. Let's bring in Mark Zandi, chief economist with Moody's Analytics. Mark, why is it good? Well, you know, the pandemic is still raging. Uh, it's not over. Uh, the economy is still very weak, unemployment and underemployment very high. Uh, so still a lot of financial stress, particularly for uh, renters, uh, people that are generally lower income, minority groups who have really gotten uh, hit hard by the pandemic. And on top of that, there's a lot of funds, renter assistance that's coming uh, to landlords and tenants. $25 billion was appropriated with the December relief package and another $21 billion plus with the American Rescue Plan. So that's almost $50 billion in total. That's just going to take a little bit of time to get out there. So I think the three-month extension 
is just enough time to get that money out and to get on the other side of the pandemic. So by the end of the June, by end of June, when this particular uh, extension expires, I think we'll be sitting in a pretty good place and uh, the moratoriums could end at that point. But Mark, what's to be done about that effect that Diana Olick was just telling us about? Harder to buy because of reduced inventory uh, of properties because renters uh, then are buying them when they can. And harder to rent because landlords who have been squeezed during this period might have tighter standards. Is there, is there a policy response that should work there? I think these are temporary uh, problems, issues. You know, I do think the, you know, the housing market is very strong, the rental market. Uh, is is uh, uh, strong in in most places, and I, I think once we get on the other side of the pandemic, and that renter assistance gets out to the landlords and, and the tenants, uh, we'll be in a much better place. So I I don't think this is going to be a, a longer term issue. I mean, it's important to point out that you know obviously you you don't have uh, uh, moratoriums like this except in you know under exigent circumstances, as the Fed as the Fed would say under real under a real crisis. So, this, you know, this is something very extraordinary, but, we, you know, we, we've been through in a very extraordinary time. But I do think, you know, a few months down the road, I, I, we'll be in a much better place and uh, people will be feeling a lot better about things. Now, normally, it's understandably a lot more difficult for landlords to refinance properties than for people who live in the property uh, to refinance. But given these circumstances, uh, should that shift or would that not uh, would that be a giveaway to, to people with capital in a way that this administration would be unlikely to do? Yeah, I, I mean, again, I think there's, you know, $50 billion. By my calculation, that covers all of the back rent, utilities and late fees that are due for all delinquent renters, not, not just renters who are low income, not just renters that got hurt by the pandemic. I mean, I mean, all renters. So there's a lot of cash that's going out to landlords and tenants. It's just now uh, uh, just getting it into the right hands as quickly as possible. And that's, that's going to be difficult, not easy. I don't mean to belittle that because this is going to go through lots of state agencies and local entities. And you know, some places are really good at getting the money out, other places not so much. So this is going to take a little bit of work. And that's why we need another extension for three months to make sure that that happens. But you know, once that money gets out, you know, I think the market will settle and we'll, you know, we'll be off and running here. And I think landlords and tenants will feel pretty good about you know, how this all played out. Now here on CNBC, we talk about stocks a lot, understandably. And we've been talking about Archego. We've talked about GameStop and some of the investor behavior that's a bit different from normal, to say the least. Um, but what about in the real estate market? Are the trends that you're seeing in behavior, um, uh, do they strike you as being healthy or within the range of normal during this period? Well, the single-family market's all juiced up, right? And much like the stock market, like uh, crypto, like commodities, uh, you know, interest rates are very low. So asset prices like stocks and housing should be high. But, you know, I think we've gone beyond that. So valuations are stretched. And in the single-family market, you know, kind of a tried-and-true measure of valuation is to take a look at household incomes, look at rents, look at construction costs. And prices are high relative to those kind of fundamentals. So, you know, I do expect this market to cool off as interest rates normalize, as mortgage rates go from record lows around 3% to something closer to 4 or 5%, hopefully somewhere down the road here. So it will be a bit of an adjustment. But I, but I will say, you know, this adjustment should be relatively modest because we, we do have an undersupply of housing, particularly for uh, homes at lower price points, affordable housing. Uh, mortgage lending has been very cautious. There, mm. You know, it's all 30-year, 15-year plain vanilla mortgages. So people haven't taken a lot of that. And most importantly, I don't, I don't sense flipping. You know, flipping was a real problem back in the in the bubble, the housing bubble before the crisis. 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of buying here, but this is buying and holding. It's not buying and flipping. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is if there were any of those warning signs behaviorally that would take us back to 2006, 2007. You say no. If there were a couple of signals, though, a, a couple of numbers or tendencies that you're watching that would give you concern if they heated up further, what would they be? Well, if mortgage debt uh, started to accumulate quickly. People started borrowing a lot of money, and lenders started uh, relaxing their underwriting standards if they you know, allowed for high loan-to-value ratios or low credit scores, or if the, if the types of mortgages being originated started to uh, become, uh, they weren't plain vanilla, kind of 30-year, 30, 15-year 30 mortgages, that would be you know, an issue. And, 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 of course, flipping. I mean, if people are just buying a home with the thought that they can turn around in a month or two or three and sell it at a higher price, that, you know, that to me is speculation. That's a tell that the market's overdone and it's going to have a very significant correction. But we're, 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 we're not there. I, I don't think that's what we're observing here. But, but uh, we, So we'll see some kind of some uh, moderation in prices, some flatlining. We may even see some price declines in some of the most juiced markets. But I don't think this is anything like the bubble you know, prior to the financial crisis over 10 years ago. Well, that's somewhat of a relief. Uh, thank you, Mark Zandi from Moody's. My pleasure. Coming up, check out this mystery chart, down more than 11% over the past month. But one five-star fund manager who is up 95% in the past year says now's the time to buy. We'll reveal what that is and his other picks next. And as we head to break, it's time for show and tell. We show the chart, then tell the story. Today's chart, Generac, the stock lower as the CEO tells CNBC inflation is very much a factor. We'll be right back. Well, I think inflation has been creeping into everything. Um, you know, I think irrespective of what the Fed uh, may, may you know, be, be saying to us, I think we're seeing it certainly in our business, materials, inputs, uh, labor, logistics, all of those costs have been going higher. And at some point, that's got to get passed along to the consumer. We're trying to do as much as we can to offset that, but it's going to be very difficult. I think you're going to definitely see, consumers are going to definitely be seeing higher prices going forward. Welcome back. Stocks recovering somewhat after a rough start this morning. You can see the Dow still in the green. The Russell 2000 is taking the biggest hit, though, today. Uh, however, through the rate-driven volatility, small caps have outperformed the Dow, S&P, and the NASDAQ in 2021. The Delaware Smid Cap Growth Fund is making some big bets on small caps. It's edged out the Russell 2000 over the past 12 months. Joining us now with some of his reopening picks is Alex Ely, CIO of U.S. Growth Equity for Macquarie and manager of the Delaware Smid Cap Growth Fund. A little small, little mid. Alex, um, what is particularly promising, you think, in this space? Uh, there's a lot of promising things. I mean, the, the economy is about to reopen. The pandemic is going to end. So there's a variety of different trends that we're seeing in, in a host of sectors that are levered towards that reopening that we're particularly excited about. Why Planet Fitness? Uh, well, um, I, I think that the number one thing people want to do right now is, is get back out there and interact. I have kids in their early 20s, late teens. They can't wait to get out there and travel and go to restaurants and interact with people. And part of that is going back to the gym. Uh, another part of that is most people have, have gained weight during the pandemic. So I think people are going to want to get back out there and exercise and see other people. And, you know, working out from your home is, is, is fine and all, but I think people are going to want to go back and, and do that again. 
Uh, how much of this is sort of like a win-lose situation? You, you tell that story about Planet Fitness, I think, well, that's bad for Peloton. Did, can you go through and think about, well, what's bad for DoorDash and, and look into the restaurant experience space as well uh, among the small and mid-caps as an area where there's promise? Yeah, you can. Absolutely. Uh, there's it, it, it is a, a Peloton's a great company. They've created a fantastic model, but they're going to be annualizing very, very difficult comps as we get into uh, the summer and into the fall. Whereas if you look at a company like Planet Fitness or those restaurant companies that you mentioned, uh, they're in a terrific position to benefit as things reopen. People want to get back out there and they will as soon as everyone gets vaccinated. Um, you know, Biden's telling us every adult should be able to be vaccinated by the end of May. I, I don't think that will happen, but I know a lot of people will. And definitely going back to restaurants is a part of that. I see Coupa Software here among your top 10 holdings. That's an interesting name. I was just talking to Rob Bernstein the other day um, because they focus on spend management. Is that yes. to some degree a reopening play? Do you think there's going to be that challenge as companies have to spend more on things like travel that they haven't spent on perhaps in a while? They're going to need to manage that differently? Uh, there are a lot of other reopening plays that are more geared or more levered to the reopening and the economic cycle than, than Coupa. Coupa does do uh, expense management, as you mentioned. Um, there's a real secular trend at, at play here. Uh, this has been growing and growing for, for years and will continue to grow going forward. But I don't know that it's levered towards reopening uh, as much as it is just a, a great secular play. And how do you look at uh, healthcare related stocks during this time? How have they been affected by the period that we've been in? And why are the ones that you think are positioned well so well positioned? Um, when we think about healthcare, the area that we're most excited about are those companies that are levered uh, to procedures. Procedures have gone up at pretty much every year for the past 40 years, uh, but they were down by 10 to 15% last year as people were reluctant to go to the hospital, reluctant to see their doctor because of the pandemic. Well, that's gonna end pretty soon. And as it does, people are gonna go back and get those procedures done. So um, we have companies, as an example, something like Progeny, uh, which sells fertility be benefits, uh, which should see a bump up as people get back out there and uh, and get those procedures done that they need or want to do. Uh, so yet another you know flip side of another story that's being told. We've heard a lot about telemedicine, but some things you can't get done uh, over the right. phone or over the webcam. Uh, what about yep. what's happening in logistics and the, the surge of attention toward air freight as so many companies try to get supply chains moving again or, or have experienced canal backups? Is, is there anything to pay attention to there? Well, we don't own any companies specifically in logistics, but definitely those are deep cyclical companies that will benefit um, from the economy reopening. It's really going to be an exciting time. We're expecting generationally high GDP growth in 2021 and into 2022. Those companies that are involved with logistics should benefit um, directly from that cyclical strength. Yeah, it's nice to see that ship dislodged uh, from the Suez right. Canal uh, in, in recent hours as we, as we look I'm forward to that. I'm glad I wasn't in charge of that, for sure. Yeah, me too. Hopefully we all get dislodged and moving again before long. Alex, thank you. Thank you, John. Still ahead, shares of Boeing climbing today after it got a vote of confidence from one of its most loyal customers. We'll have those details next. And remember, you can watch us live on the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Boeing are higher on news that Southwest is going to purchase 100 of the company's 737 MAX planes with options to buy more. CNBC.com airline reporter Leslie Josephs joins me now with the latest. Leslie, uh, Gary Kelly a year ago sounded none too happy on our air uh, with Boeing, you know, was, was eyeing Airbus, uh, it sounded like. I have to imagine he got a pretty good deal on these planes. Yeah, I mean, you think about airplanes these days after a year of pandemic, kind of could equate it to office space in Midtown. I mean, who wants planes now? So there are a lot of good bargains to be had. Um, And Boeing and Southwest, of course, don't disclose the price that they got. This is an order for 100 planes. We just have to put into perspective how big that is. That's the biggest order since the planes were first grounded two years ago. Um, Regulators, of course, lifting that grounding at the end of last year. Um, But the idea of paying that $100 million, almost $100 million list price, very unlikely. So what does this signal, first of all, for Boeing? Because that, that Max brand uh, was about as far in the tank in my book as you can imagine. But this is a major vote of confidence, it, it seems, from one of the strongest brands in the airline industry, right? You're absolutely right. This is a huge vote of confidence from an all-Boeing 737 airline which, of course, was flirting with the idea of bringing in Airbus, the Airbus A220, perhaps, um, and mixing up its fleet, which is something that it hasn't really done for the most part in, in its 50 years of flying. Uh, so this is a huge sigh of relief for Boeing that Southwest decided to, to stick with that manufacturer. Of course, there are things that are good for Southwest with this deal, too. I mean, there were some headaches that bringing in another fleet type would have caused. I mean, you have to think about pilots, hiring, pilot training, simulators. You have to think about maintenance costs and other things like that. And even though the Airbus A220, that other option that was out there, fuel-efficient airplane, more fuel-efficient than uh, older models, of course, you have to factor in those other expenses that are going to come along with that. So Boeing's up uh, right now, what, almost 2%. It's a little bit less than I might have expected. Was this, was this anticipated? It was a, a bit anticipated for them. It, uh, one analyst called it that it would be a heart attack moment if Boeing actually went ahead and, and not broke up with Boeing, but forged this relationship with Airbus. It, it Started seeing other people. Yeah. Right, exactly. O- open the relationship up a little bit. So that, that would have been the shock. Um, of course, Southwest has been also forthright. As much as they said that they were looking at the Airbus plane, they did spell out what the challenges are of having two fleet types. And Southwest is a very cost-conscious airline. I mean, they, like any airline now, needs to save on cost, of course. But this is an airline that doesn't want to bring in a lot of complexity, Mm. especially right now, as it's trying to recover from the pandemic. Understandable. Uh, Leslie, thank you for helping us to understand it. And Boeing is leading the Dow, but over in the S&P, it's Facebook that's taking the lead. That stock is the best performer after Deutsche Bank hiked its price target from 385 a share to uh, well, maybe from 355 to 385. The firm said that it's growing more optimistic about Facebook's advertising business this year. The analysts adding that they're seeing uh, multiple encouraging data sets on ad prices and spending trends. The stock is up 7% this year. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.